Welcome to the fourth episode in our real estate podcast series on the compulsory purchase or CPO regime in England. I'm Fiona Sawyer, a professional support lawyer, and I'm here with Ben Hazenberg, a senior associate in the Herbert Smith Freehills London planning team. Our previous episodes in this series have provided an overview of compulsory purchase and the preparation and making of a CPO. If you haven't had a chance to listen, perhaps you would like to go back and listen now. Ben, which part of the CPO process will you be speaking about today? Hi Fiona. In the previous episode, you heard about the preparation and making of the compulsory purchase order by the acquiring authority, which is the entity seeking CPO powers. In this episode, I'm going to give an overview of the procedures involved in the next stage of the CPO process, which follows on from the making of the order. For standalone CPOs, this stage is the consideration and ultimately confirmation of the proposed CPO by the approving authority. The approving authority is usually the Secretary of State or another senior minister of the government department with responsibility for the subject matter of the CPO. For example, for urban redevelopment projects where the enabling act for the CPO is the Town and Country Planning Act 1990, The approving authority is the Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government. However, this process does not apply to development consent orders issued under the separate regime for nationally significant infrastructure projects. Different procedures set out in the Planning Act 2008 govern the consideration of such orders. Thank you, Ben. So what are the key differences between the two regimes? For standalone CPOs, there is a two-stage process whereby the acquiring authority must first make the CPO, which is then considered and ultimately, if successful, confirmed by the separate approving authority. The key point here is that the CPO does not come into effect until it has been confirmed. In contrast, with development consent orders, there isn't a two-stage process whereby an acquiring authority first makes the order, which then only comes into effect once a separate approving authority has considered and confirmed it. Instead, the powers, which are contained within the DCO, come into effect on the date the order is made by the Secretary of State. In a nutshell, under the Development Consent Order regime, a project promoter submits a DCO application to the Secretary of State. This application will include a draft form of Development Consent Order, which will contain within it the requested compulsory purchase powers. In addition to consent to carry out the works and other statutory powers, such as stopping up of highways. The DCO application including the request for compulsory purchase powers, is then examined and determined in accordance with the procedures set out under the Planning Act 2008. The outcome of this process, if successful, is that the Secretary of State makes the development consent order, at which point the compulsory purchase powers within that development consent order take effect. Okay, thank you, Ben. So, Turning in more detail to standalone CPOs, which have this two-stage process, what does the confirmation stage involve? For standalone CPOs, the process is governed by the Acquisition of Land Act 1981. Under that regime, once the acquiring authority has made the CPO, submitted it to the Secretary of State 
and given notice of it in accordance with the relevant legislation. A period of time, usually 21 days, is allowed for third parties to make objections to the CPA. The procedure that is then followed depends on whether or not any such objections are raised. If no objections are raised or objections which have been raised are withdrawn, the Secretary of State will consider the case on its own merits and proceed to determination of the proposed CPO. If objections are raised and are not withdrawn, then the CPO and any objections to it will be considered at a public inquiry or, alternatively, through a prescribed written representation process. Generally, the approving authority's preference, for the most part, will be for the written representation process to be used. However, public inquiries are held where the scale or complexity of the proposed order means that it would be inappropriate for the written representation procedure to be followed. This will often be the case for typical large-scale housing or other redevelopment projects. So who is able to object to a CPO? Any person can make an objection to a CPO. However, only objections from qualifying persons can give rise to an inquiry being held. As mentioned in episode 3, qualifying persons includes owners, occupiers, tenants and other persons likely to be entitled to claim compensation as a result of the CPO infringing their property rights. Objections made by qualifying persons are called relevant objections. The approving authority can, however, disregard any relevant objections which relate solely to compensation or land severance. Any relevant objections which are not withdrawn by the objector or disregarded by the Secretary of State are known as remaining objections. Any person who has made a remaining objection is known as a remaining objector. Remaining objectors have the right to object at a public inquiry. Can anyone other than the Secretary of State be the approving authority? For standalone CPOs, the answer is yes. Under the 1981 Act, the approving authority can delegate to an inspector the authority to make the decision on confirmation of the CPO, and this is decided on a case-by-case basis. It is also possible for the acquiring authority to confirm its own CPO, but only where there are no remaining objections and certain other criteria are met. In contrast, for development consent orders under the 2008 Act regime, whilst the application is examined by an inspector, only the Secretary of State has the power to make the DCO. Okay, thank you. So, let's assume that there are remaining objections and an inquiry is going to be held. What happens next? Procedures for CPO inquiries are governed by the Compulsory Purchase Inquiries Procedure Rules 2007. Broadly, the key stages of the process are as follows. The inquiry process begins when the Secretary of State writes to the acquiring authority in every remaining objector to tell them that an inquiry is going to be held. The date of this initial letter is known as the relevant date. Around this time, an inspector will be appointed to run the inquiry and consider the CPO on behalf of the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State or Inspector may, but does not have to, call a pre-inquiry meeting, the purpose of which is to discuss the procedure, 
scope and programming of the inquiry. This meeting must be no later than 16 weeks from the relevant date. In practice, it is often the inspector who calls a pre-inquiry meeting. The acquiring authority must then serve its statement of case. This must give full particulars of its case for justifying the CPO and should set out a detailed response to the objections made to the CPO. The acquiring authority's original statement of reasons, which we covered in episode 3, often forms the basis of the statement of case. The Secretary of State can, and normally will, also request each remaining objector and anyone else who wants to appear at the inquiry to provide a statement of case. In terms of timing, the inquiry will normally be held eight weeks after the pre-inquiry meeting or where there is no pre-inquiry meeting within 22 weeks of the relevant date. However, the Secretary of State does have the power to vary this timetable if the timescales are impracticable. Those people who intend to give evidence at the inquiry need to provide their written proofs of evidence no later than three weeks before the start of the inquiry. And the next step is the inquiry itself. The inspector will explain on the first morning of the inquiry how he or she wants to run it. Normally, the acquiring authority will present its case first and has the final right of reply. Persons giving evidence at the inquiry can, and usually will, be cross-examined by a barrister for the opposing party. The inspector will normally also carry out a site visit. Once the inquiry has concluded, the inspector produces a report for the Secretary of State with his or her recommendation in relation to the CPO. The Secretary of State then takes the final decision on the CPO, which may or may not follow the inspector's recommendation. The final decision will be one of the following. Confirm the CPO in the form which it was made by the acquiring authority. Confirm it with modifications. Confirm only part of it. Or reject the CPO. Thank you, Ben. And how long does it normally take to get the final decision from the Secretary of State? The government is required to publish timetables for the confirmation of CPOs. The current published timetable for CPOs confirmed by the Secretary of State after an inquiry provides that 80% of such CPOs should be decided within 20 weeks of the close of the inquiry, with the remaining cases being decided within 24 weeks. These are just targets though. The validity of a CPO is not affected if the Secretary of State fails to determine it in accordance with this published timetable. Thank you. And finally, one last question. What happens once the CPO has been confirmed? Once a CPO has been confirmed by the Secretary of State, the acquiring authority must give requisite notice of, and publish in a local newspaper, the confirmation of the order in accordance with applicable statutory requirements. Generally, the CPO comes into operation on the date that it has been published by the acquiring authority in a local newspaper. There is then a six-week period during which it is possible for a person aggrieved to bring a statutory challenge against the CPO under Section 23 of the Acquisition of Land Act 1981. Thank you very much, Ben, for that overview of the consideration and confirmation of a CPO. It was a really useful summary of how the process works. In the next in this series, we'll be discussing the implementation of a CPO once it has come into effect. Thank you, Fiona. This series is intended to provide a general overview of the various stages of the compulsory purchase process. 
We've tried to ensure that each podcast is accurate at the time of recording, but the law can change and a general overview can't take account of the many different factors that can affect each individual case. So please seek legal or professional advice. If you have any questions on this podcast or any other in the series, please get in touch using the contact details on the podcast homepage. Thank you.